Ladies and gentlemen, the chairman of the Republican National Committee, Mr. Haley Barber. In 1996, the Republican National Convention put San Diego in the spotlight. Some 30,000 people crowded into the city's hotels and conference halls. Tijuana's boosters hoped to lure some of them across the border to shop and eat. They also hoped some of the journalists assigned to cover the convention would venture into Tijuana and send back positive stories about what they saw. A U.S. public relations firm was hired. The streets downtown were swept. A promotional video was prepared. Late on a Saturday afternoon, on the day before the convention, I drove three of my Tijuana colleagues across the border for a lavish media party. It was hosted by my newspaper's Republican owner. My car was tiny, and there was barely enough room for all four of us. I drove in circles through downtown San Diego, feeling anxious. Everything seemed unfamiliar, so different from Tijuana. On that Saturday evening, while my friends and I were enjoying live music and fireworks over San Diego Bay, something was happening in Tijuana. Something that would dash its grand hopes of attracting those Republican tourists. A Japanese businessman was kidnapped, a man with the nickname Mr. Sweet. I'm Sandra Dibble, and this is Episode 2 of Border City, a podcast from the San Diego Union-Tribune. It's about Tijuana, a city known for violence, drugs, and migration into the United States. But it's also a city where I, like so many others, have found a place and a purpose. A city of exuberance and hope. The Japanese businessman was 58-year-old Mamoru Kano. He was vice president of Sanyo Video Components, one of Tijuana's largest assembly plants. Kano lived in San Diego County and crossed the border to go to work. Employees called him Mr. Sweet because he often passed out candy. Kano drove into Tijuana that Saturday afternoon to cheer for his company's baseball team. After the game, he walked to his car with an employee and her sister. Two vehicles blocked his Cadillac. Then gunmen jumped out and abducted them. The women were released the next morning, but the kidnappers demanded $2 million in ransom for Kano. The story was an explosive one. A foreign executive had been kidnapped, and the timing couldn't have been worse. Globalization was in full swing in those days, and Tijuana was a booming manufacturing hub. Foreign companies had built large, flat buildings in industrial parks across the city. Their products, often electronics, were going to U.S. consumers. The plants were called maquiladoras, and the city had hundreds of them, more than anywhere else in Mexico. The pay was low, less than $50 a week for an entry-level worker. But it was a steady job, and employees got government housing credits and health care. Free meals and grocery coupons were often part of the deal. 
Sanyo had opened its first factory here in the 1970s. By 1996, it had five maquiladoras and 5,000 employees. They assembled refrigerators, batteries, televisions. Cano's kidnapping drew attention to Tijuana, just not the kind that tourism promoters were counting on. This was the first known kidnapping of a maquiladora executive in Mexico. And the story went worldwide. It made me feel very bad because, you know, Tijuana doesn't kidnap people. They're suddenly, they come some people from outside and they kidnap uh, this, this Japanese guy who was a good man. That's Jose Galicot. He's the guy who owned the popular nightclub where the Arellano brothers once partied. He's also a prominent businessman and a founding member of the city's image committee. There was people working, worrying about what has happened, and we were very, very upset. And there were few things that we can do. We didn't have the tools to, to find him, so we were just praying to God that they... He was alive. Sanyo paid the ransom. And a week after he was kidnapped, Kano was released. But by then, the convention was over. Did you feel that that your effort to promote the city failed because then this happened and there was, don't you, wasn't there more interest in the kidnapping than in the good people of Tijuana? So the only time we, we are fighting with the bad image. And I, I am a very optimistic person. They say that an optimistic is a guy who sees a light where there is none, and the pessimistic is the one who turns off. So I'm optimistic. I all the time am presenting the good things of the city. Was it dangerous for Americans to visit Tijuana? Was it dangerous for me to live there? My friends in the United States often ask me those questions, And I usually told them the same thing. Yes, horrible things had happened to some people, but not to anyone I knew. I felt safe in my apartment. I felt safe in my office. I avoided traveling in rough neighborhoods at night. But during the day, I drove anywhere in the city, reporting stories or just exploring on my own. My middle-class Mexican friends didn't seem especially worried either. In those days, The violent crimes that made the news rarely involved ordinary people like them. In most of the cases I wrote about, the victims were linked to the drug world. Or they were law enforcement officials who had somehow angered the traffickers. Once in a while, the violence did come close to my world. Uncomfortably close. A few months before Kana was kidnapped, a former federal prosecutor was jogging on a track at a Tijuana Recreation Center. It was a place where I often exercised. Two men came up from behind and shot him in the back. He died at the scene. But once the crime tape was removed and the blood washed off the track, things returned to normal. By the next morning, the runners were back. I went back too. My job was keeping me so busy that a neighbor helped me find someone to clean my apartment. Angela Rangel arrived at 7 a.m. on a Saturday. She was a small woman in a ponytail, a shirtwaist dress, white bobby socks, and loafers. 
She looked to be about my age, in her early 40s, but she barely reached my shoulder, and I'm only five foot four. To get to my apartment, Angela traveled across town from her hillside neighborhood. She took two taxis, taxis that were more like buses. People traveling the same route would squeeze in together. After the taxi let her out, Angela would walk uphill for 20 minutes, then up two flights of stairs to my door. She wasted no time getting to work. Beads of sweat formed on her brow as she cleaned nonstop. When she was done, I drove her back to the two-room house she shared with her husband and three daughters. It was on an unpaved street and had no running water. To bathe, they heated buckets on a gas burner or on a wood fire outside. The toilet was an outhouse. Like me, Angela came to Tijuana from elsewhere, but that's where our similarities ended. She was born in the state of Michoacán, about 1,500 miles from the border, the oldest of 11 children. When her father fell gravely ill, 16-year-old Angela left for Tijuana to support her family. She made the 30-hour bus trip alone. Angela cleaned my house every Saturday. Sometimes she brought her girls to help. Teresa was 17 and pregnant. Angelita was 14, funny, noisy, affectionate, and always in motion. Griselda, la gris, was 15, a middle school student who spent hours just dreamily at the sink. It was always something special when my mother would say, we're going to go with my madrina Sandra. We all wanted to come, but we couldn't all come at once. We had to take turns. For us, it was a chance to have an outing and see something different. When we went for the first time and saw, it all looked so pretty. And when we knew you, even more. You would bring us things, and it was so special because we were children who had nothing. Bit by bit, Angela told me about her life. She had survived uterine cancer. When massive flooding hit the city one year, their canyon neighborhood was cut off, and food had to be dropped in by helicopter. Week after week, she showed up at my place with her stories. Week after week, I drove her home. Our lives became interwoven without really trying. Angela began inviting me to her family's parties. She called them convivios, which translates to live together. We'd fill our plates with tortillas, guacamole, beans, and carne asada. The thin slabs of beef were grilled by our sister's husbands. Someone usually prepared Jamaica. It's a red drink made of hibiscus flowers. As the evening sun cast long shadows, we'd all sit together outside Angela's little house. We'd watch the children play, their voices rising with chatter and laughter. Birthdays, weddings graduations, children's day. Sometimes we just celebrated because it was Sunday. Angela made sure I was welcome. She watched after me as though I was one more sister. One day, Angela asked me to be La Gris's madrina or godmother. I accepted, of course. That made me Angela's comadre. It's a Mexican form of kinship that can bind even unrelated people tighter than blood. Still, we used the formal usted when we addressed each other. 
It's an old-fashioned sign of respect. When Teresa's baby was born, they called her Sandrita, or Little Sandra. Nobody said she was named for me, but it seemed to be so, and I was flattered. When I look back on my early years in Tijuana, I realize how little I understood about the city where I lived and worked, about the political, economic, and dark underworld forces that were playing out. Even as ambitious outsiders like Angela and her sisters were arriving from Mexico's interior. At the time, it all seemed exciting to me, like the Wild West. I imagined those young families as modern-day pioneers, courageously building shanty towns and persisting through flooding, landslides, and cold weather. They often lived without running water or paved streets. They raised tarps to create classrooms for their children. Then they demanded that the state send teachers. Their lives seemed difficult, yet far from hopeless. I didn't see then how hard it would be for them to realize their dreams, that their bravery might not be enough, that the communities they were trying to build would someday become violent battlegrounds, places where neighborhood drug dealers competed to supply local addicts. ¿Y tú dónde naciste? And you, where were you born? I have always dreaded the question. I usually answer, Egypt? And brace myself for the follow-ups that are sure to come. For someone who makes a living peering into other people's lives, I've always been reluctant to reveal much about mine. My father was a U.S. Foreign Service officer who met my mother when he was posted in Alexandria, Egypt. She was Swiss and Greek, a member of the city's large European expatriate community. My brothers and I accompanied our parents on postings to Turkey, Austria, Switzerland, and Syria. In many ways, it was a glorious childhood that allowed us to see the world and learn foreign languages. Yet when we returned to the United States, we often felt foreign ourselves. I wasn't quite sure where I fit in. I think this, in part, is what led me to the border. The idea that I might find a place for myself in a city where so many people are recent arrivals or on their way to somewhere else. My brother, Charles, well, he has another notion. Okay, okay, so who are you? I'm Charles Dibble, Sandra Dibble's brother. Where are we today? We're in Tijuana at the market. Okay, all right. Do you think growing up I was the oddball? Yes, I think you were. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in what sense? You were contrarian, um, and you probably still are. Um, so, uh, yeah. So you think I came to Tijuana because I'm a contrarian? No, I think you like struggles. I think you like, um, you like challenges. Um, and Tijuana, I'm, I'm sure, is a challenge. One September night, my friend Norma and I went to a concert at El Lugar del Nopal. It's an independent art space near downtown Tijuana. A group called Cuarteto Esplandian performed a hauntingly beautiful song. It was composed by Mexico City-based musician Gerardo Tamés. Its title, Tierra Mestiza, speaks of Mexico's mixed Spanish and indigenous heritage. After the concert, I met one of the guitarists, Francisco Guerrero. 
His friends call him Paco, and that's what I call him too. Like me, he came to Tijuana in search of something he couldn't really define. He was like casting a bottle into the ocean. Because the truth is that things were going very well for me in Mexico City. I was playing in a duo with piano and guitar. Paco was born in Oaxaca. It's a state that's economically poor but culturally rich with deep-rooted musical traditions. His family migrated to Mexico City, where he graduated from the National Music School. He began teaching and performing. But Paco said something was missing. And when he was offered a position at a newly formed guitar center in Tijuana, he wasted no time accepting. My mother was very upset. She said, what are you going to do there? Why are you leaving? But there was something in my heart that attracted me very, very, very much. Paco's story reminded me of my own impulsive decision to move to Tijuana. The truth is that I didn't think I didn't even take the time to evaluate the work conditions. The moment they told me, I came very quickly, like a girlfriend who doesn't even have the ring yet, but she's already said yes. Music with Paco and get-togethers with my other new friends became lifelines, gentle hooks that bound me to Tijuana. But every time I felt I was finally settling in, something happened to remind me that I was far from home. When my grandmother died in Switzerland, I drove to Hidalgo Market. I bought tomatoes, carrots, onions, and parsley, ingredients of the delicious sauce she used to cook. I poured it over rice, and I ate it alone in my apartment. In 1996, a brutal crime rocked Mexico's law enforcement community and once again put Tijuana in the national spotlight. It made the Arellanos seem more powerful than ever. That August, a new federal police commander came to Tijuana. He vowed to bring down the cartel and to purge his agency of the corrupt officers who served it. His name was Ernesto Ibarra Santes. He traveled around the city with eight heavily armed bodyguards, yet somehow he seemed fearless. Most law enforcement officials avoided speaking openly about the Arellanos, but Ibarra Santes told reporters that he knew the whereabouts of the cartel's leaders. He knew the names of their accomplices, and he knew how they laundered money. My reporter friend Dora Elena was shocked and intrigued. She requested a one-on-one interview with Ibarra Santes. To her surprise, he said yes. Todavía así como... I went there pretty skeptical. I thought, he's not going to say much, but it's still worth a try. Dorelena met Ibarra Santes in his heavily guarded office in the city's Rio zone. He says, if you assure me that you're going to publish what I'm going to say, I will talk. So he starts to mention the Arellanos. 
He speaks, above all, about their financial connections with businesses and businessmen that are supposedly supporting them. And when we're finished, I tell him, you know, be careful. They're going to kill you. And he laughs and says, you think so? I say, the truth is, what you're saying is very delicate. Are you sure you want us to publish this? He says, publish. Less than a week after that interview, Ibarra Santes and two of his agents flew to Mexico City. They were headed to a meeting at their agency's headquarters. It was late when they arrived and they got a cab at the airport. On their way into town, they were ambushed. Gunmen sprayed the cab with bursts of automatic gunfire. Ibarra Santes was killed. So was everyone else in the cab, including the driver. I asked myself, if I hadn't published, perhaps this would not have happened. But he was prepared to talk. He would have perhaps said it to someone else. He even challenged me and said, if you publish, then I'll give you more information. By now, the Arianos were leading one of the most powerful drug trafficking organizations in Mexico, Some said the most powerful. Their biggest rival was the Sinaloa cartel. Its leaders tried many times to unseat the Arellanos, but failed. The government tried to shut them down too, and it also failed. It wasn't just the Arellanos' enormous firepower that made them a threat. It was also their money, massive amounts of money. You know, it was over $50 million a year that they were spending on on bribes in, in Baja California. That's David Shirk, a professor at the University of San Diego. He follows organized crime in Mexico. And so whether that's police chiefs or secretaries of public security, um, or even perhaps people at, other, at high uh, levels of elected office, um, they were able to keep the wheels greased uh, in a way that allowed them to operate with almost complete impunity in the 1990s. You know, some of the tactical things that they did working with the narco juniors, working with cross-border gangs, I mean, those were all key to sort of reinforcing that power. But at the end of the day, um, this is a business that's all about making money and finding ways to um, facilitate that. Two weeks after Ibarra Santes was assassinated, two men were arrested on the San Diego side of the border in the small, wealthy city of Coronado. One of the men arrested that day was Alfredo Oroyan. He was the youngest of the Oroyan family, Adriana's little brother. They were the Tijuana siblings who grew up down the street from El Arbol, the neighborhood hangout where Ramon Arellano sometimes showed up. Alfredo was 25 years old then. More than a decade had gone by since he first crossed paths with Ramon. The U.S. held Alfredo on a weapons charge, but Mexican authorities wanted him extradited to Mexico. They accused him of participating in the murder of Ibarra Santes. The Odoyans lived just down the hill from me. But like most people in the neighborhood, I was oblivious to the tragedy that was unfolding in their comfortable home. The family was frantic, not just because Alfredo had been arrested, 
but because his older brother Alex had disappeared on a trip to Guadalajara. When Alex didn't stay in touch, the family grew alarmed. He's 35 years old, but he has mamitis. He's like, he calls mom every day, all the time. So even though he was in Guadalajara and even though he wasn't here, he kept on calling. I mean, I think my mom spoke with him like the last time on, the, on September 10th. But when the 16th of September passed and Alex didn't communicate, then she knew something was wrong. Adriana said nobody seemed able to help their family. Not the police, not government officials. But when, when, when all this happened, yes, we were like pioneers in all this. You know, I, I don't think it's the right word, but, but yeah. Um, there was no roadmap for you guys. Right? Because the Orellan children were dual citizens, they were all born in San Diego. The family turned to the American government for help. Eventually, Alex was traced to an abandoned military base outside Guadalajara. An agent from the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms found him chained to a bed and blindfolded. The agent reported what he found to the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City. But no action was taken. They didn't believe that he was, that he was U.S. because he was dark-skinned. Yeah, because he was Spanish. Moreno. Yeah, uh-huh. And he spoke Spanish, and he didn't speak English, and he didn't know the Pledge of Allegiance. Of the four Orellan children... Alex was the only one who wasn't fully bilingual, the only one who didn't go to school in San Diego. In the 1990s, crossing the U.S.-Mexico border was easy for the tens of thousands of Tijuana residents whose lives spanned both sides of the border. It was almost like driving to another part of town. I crossed to shop, see friends, visit the doctor, meet editors, go for a swim. If I avoided rush hour, it took me about 20 minutes to drive through at San Isidro. It's the busiest land port in the Western Hemisphere. I didn't even show a passport. I just say, American citizen. And most of the time, I was just waved through. Crossing was also a comfortable routine for my friend Maria Andrade. And how long have you been been crossing? I've been crossing all my life, all my life. Uh, when I was little with my parents, but now when I grow by myself. Maria is a dual U.S. and Mexican citizen who lives in Tijuana. Her dad used to work in San Diego. To her, San Diego is simply el otro lado, the other side. So we used to cross like um, every day. Every day, my brothers and sisters, they, we used to go to San Isidro just to put gas, to buy milk, to get a hamburger because the border was so available so fast that we didn't have any, any problem crossing. So for us, it was, it was the same. It was just the matter of crossing the border, but we, we, always, uh, we always feel that it was, we were like brothers and sisters, like, just like that. Maria and most of my friends have documents that allow them to cross into the U.S. legally. But for those trying to cross without papers, the journey was often perilous, especially after 1994. That's when the U.S. launched Operation Gatekeeper, an enforcement program to stop the flow of unauthorized immigrants into urban San Diego. Gatekeeper worked. The number of illegal crossings into San Diego dropped dramatically. But migrants continued crossing, 
often taking their chances in the rugged mountainous and desert wilderness to the east. On a cold winter day in January 1997, photographer John Gibbons and I boarded a plane in Tijuana and headed toward southern Mexico. In the cargo compartment was the body of 19-year-old Alejandro Ramos. Down below, we could see low mountains wrapped in fog. Alejandro had died just north of there, in the rugged terrain of eastern San Diego County, while he was trying to cross illegally into the U.S. Now, Alejandro was going home, to Ignacio Ramirez, near the Guatemala border. It's a town of dirt roads and brightly painted houses, of men on horseback, and families who gather in the shade of palm trees. Alejandro had moved to New York City when he was 17. He'd come home for a family wedding and was eager to get back to the Bronx. He had a room waiting for him there and a job as a dishwasher at a fancy Manhattan restaurant. Alejandro and two of his cousins made their way to Tijuana. Then smugglers led them through the mountainous terrain east of the city and across the border into San Diego County. They walked for more than a day through snow and freezing rain until Alejandro could no longer keep up. The smugglers didn't want to stop so one cousin stayed at his side, and the other walked to find help. By the time the Border Patrol arrived, Alejandro was dead. I remember two things about that warm afternoon when Alejandro Ramos's coffin was returned to his hometown. I remember the dozens of mourners who held each other and screamed with a pain that seemed too much to bear. And I remember how John and I were received as though we were returning family members, not strangers intruding on their grief. They offered us their bedrooms, plates of food, the best fruit from their trees. Why are you so nice to us? I asked Alejandro's grandmother. She smiled and answered, because you brought him back to us. In the next episode, the violence touches my world. The Arellanos target a prominent Tijuana journalist. It was a miracle that he could call out that he was even alive. It would have been worse for us if he hadn't been wearing a black sweater. Because of the black sweater, we couldn't see the blood. It was as though I'd been seeing smoke from a faraway fire. And then the flames drew closer. Border City was reported, written, and created by me, Sandra Dibble. Susan White was my editor and co-creator. Our associate producers were Elise Anoush Manukian and Hafsa Fathima. Kurt Conan and AMFM Music provided original music and sound design. And Joanne Farian and Garage Media provided production support. Many thanks to Edith Fuentes, who read the voice of Griselda. Manuel Sanchez, who read the voice of Francisco Guerrero. And Carmen Escobosa, who read the voice of Dorelena Cortez.